0: You're listening to a message from Streams Church in Litchfield Park, Arizona. For more content, visit streamschurch.org. And now, Pastor Lloyd Baker. Two weeks ago, we started a series about family values. And I thought, you know, for those, many of you here are newer to our church family and, uh, you haven't got an opportunity to meet my family. So I thought I'd throw a picture of my family up here. And, um, this is Judy's mom here, uh, Betty. And my mom and dad there, they do all the goodies out there in the back. How many people enjoy their ministry? Yeah. This is my wife, Judy. We've been married uh, 28 years, May 17th this year. And then my uh, daughter, Sarah, and son-in-law, Shinsuke, and little grandson, Jade, who are in Japan, and they're associate pastors of a church in Japan, largest church in all of Tokyo in Japan. And, uh, this is my daughter Brittany, and I keep forgetting she graduates, um, from ASU. She's, uh, she walks on Tuesday. And I've told everybody she, she says, dad, have you told everybody? Cause she got accepted into a, a PA school in Minnesota. But since then, she's actually had two other offers and she accepted to, to go to Midwestern here in town of 59th and the 101. So she'll be in town, we're excited about that, and going to physician assistant school. So the next 27 months, we won't get to see her at all, and she'll be busy. So we're pretty excited about that, she got accepted. So that's my family, thought I'd let you know that. And uh, happy Mother's Day to my mother, and uh, to my beautiful wife, and grandparent, and great-grandparent. Yay, so. Um, as I mentioned last week, Judy and I will be leaving for an extended vacation, mid-May through mid-July. Uh, we have some very capable pastors who will be speaking to you. And the greatest gift you can give us as pastors um, uh, is duty and I to be faithful in your attendance and your giving. And I will assure you that uh, our vision uh, to create a spiritual family is not personality-driven. It's community-driven, and that's what we're all about in our church. And you'll see that next couple of weeks because we really have a great staff. And we spent on planning uh, a month in Japan and then the last month, we're going to spend a month here in in the area, really praying and seeking God for the next 10 years. And I'm sorry, but we are coming back. When we started the church 10 years ago, uh, Judy and I prayed about it, and we made a 25-year commitment to really just what God was going to do in this church in the West Valley. And I think that differentiates ourselves from other pastors. We just say, God, this is what we're going to do. No matter what you do, if it's five people, we'll do it five. If it's 500 people, we'll do it 500 people. And so we're looking forward to spending great time with my beautiful family, but um, we're looking forward to coming back and seeing what God has to do in regards to that. Um, we're talking about family values, and um, it's interesting because even though we didn't understand what we were doing in regards to raising our family, Judy can and I can look back and realize that for most of the part of our life, we lived by a code, uh, a set of cemented values That determined our actions, and our children picked up on those values. They were sometimes even unspoken, and it seems like they're living them out also. Uh, Which leads me to a few statements that I want to make today: is actions never create values? Actions reveal values. I didn't know if you knew that, so you can try to you know, make do something and say, we're going to get this value, so we're going to do it over repetitively. But in reality, actions reveal your values. What you really are about will come in how you act. And it's a natural birth of who you are as a person, what you created. The second thing I want to say is actions are temporary, but values transcend time. And values are passed down from generation to generation to generation. And it's a really pertinent idea for Mother's Day because one of the values that a follower of Jesus Christ is, is that we make decisions with an understanding of reciprocity and and in light of eternity. And reciprocity is the belief that every action has a response, that everything that we do and everything that we act upon has a, a response back to us. Something will happen in response to what we do. And And living your life in light of eternity means this, is that every action that you have has a future, and there's an echo or a ripple effect to everything that we do throughout life. And it goes on can go on for generations. So mothers warned us about this. Mothers understand this ripple effect. And they warn us about this all the time. So here are some mothers' warnings. And then we're going to see if there's truth about these things that maybe you heard as a child. Warning number one, don't go out with a coat or you'll get sick. See, mothers understand that. If you go out with a coat, the replications are, you're going to get sick. Is that true or false? Sorry, it's false. Actually, you can't, yeah, it's, it's proven that you don't get colds from, uh, from being chilled or anything like that. You, you, that they come from viruses and stuff like that. So you didn't know that, did you? Yeah. I'm telling my mothers today. Here's another warning. You're gonna fall and crack open your head. Anybody hear that one? That's true. It could happen, right? <laughs> it depends on what you're doing at the time. Uh, you're much more likely to fracture your skull, but there's a, there's a possibility that you could fall and you could crack your head wide open. So that's a possibility. Another warning is chewing gum stays in your digestive system for seven years. <laughs> that's not true, okay? <laughs> Sorry, moms. Uh, anything will pass typically in a day or two, you know, just so you know. <laughs> um, here's the warning your mother gave you. Someday your face is going to freeze like that. Right? And that's conditional. Because if you live in Antarctica and stay out long enough, your face will freeze like that in that position. But here in Arizona, probably not. Uh, here's another warning. Wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. <laughs> and I think that's a neutral thing. Research says when emergency room personnel cut the clothes off of trauma patients, it's done so quickly, they never pay attention to whether the underwear is stained, dirty, <laughs> or full of holes, but trust me, if it's bad enough, they will notice. Okay. <laughs> They'll be going, Ooh, wow. <laughs> that guy didn't listen to his mama. <laughs> so uh, here's another warning. If you don't wait an hour after eating to get in the swing pole, you will cramp up and die. And that's false. Exactly. Zero deaths have ever been attributed to entering a pool too quickly after eating. Warning. If you break a leg, don't come running to me. That's true. If you break a leg, you probably won't go running to anybody. And, uh, the last one is, you'll poke someone's eye out with that. And that's not true, because it's impossible to poke somebody's eyeball out with a sharp instrument. What you probably do is pierce it, you could rupture it, but to actually pop an eyeball out, and we, and I won't have, anyway, you have to get in there with your fingers and actually, just so. True story. True story. Josh can verify that, okay? <laughs> I was gonna say something, but I wanted you to come forward. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Josh has a, a fake eye, and so, uh, it's great as the youth pastor, isn't it? Really, kids great gimmick. Kids love that, so, um, even when misguided moms are great between connecting present actions with future ramifications. Have you noticed that? They have the great ability to do that. In our Western culture, we are, are more likely, to think, present tense. When you're asked about your family in the Western culture, you're more likely to talk about your husband, your wife, your children, your present-day circumstances. That's not true in other cultures. In fact, in most cultures, especially Asian cultures, if you ask them about their family, you're going to start talking to you about their heritage about where they came from, their hometown, their great-grandparents, their grandfather, what the lineage that was passed down to them. And the truth the matter is today that you are today because of uh, your parents, and your parents are who they are today because of their parents, and it goes on and on and on. Whether you're a father, a mother, an uncle, an aunt, a grandmother, a grandfather, you will have impact on the generations below you, the people that you know in your family. And whether you're intentional or not, whether you like it or not, you're in in a process of shaping the next generations in your lineage. And in today's society, it's even more difficult to get people to understand that today's actions always connect to tomorrow's results. Because people like to live for today, in today's society, don't they? They live for the moment. They live for themselves. And the tension is that we're bombarded with, that we've been talking about is is that uh, when we live in a society that lives for today, um, are we going to live according to their rules or according to biblical rules? Are we willing to establish a biblical family value that even though it may fight directly in the face of our culture, are we going to change the rules so it's easier? Or are we going to live according to the biblical rules? And today we're going to take a very conflicted family story that's found in the Bible, and we're going to speak about the echo effect or the ripple effect that is true. It's a biblical truth. And a great illustration is found in a family in the Old Testament. I said a couple weeks ago, if you're looking for great examples of biblical families, there's not a whole lot to be found. This is an interesting one. And we're going to cover family story over 60 years in a quick fast-forward manner. Um, so we're just going to talk about the stories. And it's going to make your family look pretty awesome. The story starts with the most famous families of all time, Abraham. And Abraham had a son called Isaac. And Isaac had a couple sons named Jacob and Esau. And actually, it's probably more pertinent to say Esau and Jacob. They were twins, but Esau came out a few seconds before Jacob. And in that culture, it was very significant because as the eldest son or the firstborn, you were granted certain rights over the other children. You were given a double portion of the inheritance compared to all your brothers and sisters. And when the father died, you were the one that made up the rules. You were the judge of the family. And so everybody came to you like they would have to the father when the father died. And you were the judge or the ruler over the family unit. So being the firstborn was was very important. So Esau was actually the firstborn. Now Jacob had 12 sons, of which his most famous son was Joseph. And when Joseph was 17 years old, he realized that his older brother's uh, his ten elder brothers really hated him. Because he was the son, you gotta follow me here on this, okay? He was the son of his father's favorite wife. And therefore, he was his father's favorite son, even though he was number 11. Now, here, here's some dysfunction, right? Imagine walking up and go, honey, I just want you to know, you're my favorite wife. And you're my second favorite wife. And you're the third, and you're the fourth, and he went down the list. And, and so, it got really weird at times. So Jacob, uh, because he loved Joseph so much, and he was the favored son, he was the baby, you know, he was uh, uh, at the time, he would always have Jacob check up on his older brothers and go check up, go see what your brothers are up to this time. And so Jacob would go do that. And he'd come back and say, well, you won't believe what they're doing today, Dad. Da, da 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 da, and they come home and they get in trouble. So can you imagine the animosity that's be happening between him? So there's one of these times that Joseph is headed out. His, his dad says, "Go see what your brothers are doing." And he's walking up on his ten brothers, and his brothers see him from afar, and they say to him, "Here comes Joseph! Here comes that troublemaker, that snitch, the narc." And we've had it up to here with this punk. And they devise a plan to finally get this guy to shut up. They said, let's just kill him and be done with this guy once and for all. His daddy's favorite. He's always checking up on us. He's always telling on us. So they grab him. They strip him of his jacket, his coat that was given him by his father. And they throw him in an empty well so they can decide what to do with him and how to kill him. And all of a sudden they're overwhelmed by mercy. And at the same time they see this caravan off into the in, in into the distance and they think to themselves, well, you know what? Let's just sell him. We can make some extra cash. We'll take his coat. We'll go home. We'll put some animals' blood on it. We'll tell Dad, you know what? He died. He put up a good fight. You should be proud of him. We just found his coat. We don't know what happened to him. The animals must have drug him off, but he died. We'll make some money. We'll get rid of this kid. And all things will be well. So that's what they do. And the dad was just devastated by this. And the dad, we're not sure what happened exactly. But look, at here it is. And there's animals' blood. And your favorite son from your favorite wife is dead. And so he gets sold. Joseph gets sold to a man by the name of Potiphar, who was a captain of the guard. And he was a very powerful man. And he gained favor with Potiphar and was placed in a position of authority. And I'm telling you this whole story. You need to read your Bible. This stuff's in there. It's pretty good stuff. I'm like, wow, that's in there? And I go, yeah, it's in the Bible. And uh, so it's in the book of Genesis. So Potiphar put him in this position. Well, we find out, as, as Joseph is, um, that even though he's been dealt this bad hand, you've got to listen and understand what Joseph says, he decides to live life as if God was with him through it all. Like God was actually in the midst of his crisis. He refuses to feel like God has given up on him. So he always makes decisions throughout all this as if God is with him, looking down upon him, and God is a part of his life. That God is directing his every step through all these circumstances. So one day he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. And she says to him, I like for you to be my boy. Okay? Okay? I want you to be my boyfriend. And Joseph says this, no, I can't do that. And listen, he says this, it would dishonor my master, your husband, you're a married woman, and he says it would dishonor my God. You know what I mean? And you're like, time out, Joseph. Which God is that? The God who had your brothers throw you into a pit? The God who had your brothers sell you into slavery? Is that the God you're talking about, the one you don't want to dishonor, right? Is that the one? And, and Joseph did the right thing and it infuriated Potiphar's wife. And so she screams out a false accusation that Joseph raped her and they came in and they believed her. And so because of that, Joseph was then thrown into prison. And we run into this very strange verse that summarizes this portion of Joseph's life in prison. It's found in Genesis chapter 39, verse 21. The Lord was with him. Well, well, that's good, right? I mean, the Lord's with him. And he showed him kindness. That's wonderful. That's great. And he granted him favor. And we're like, yes. In the eyes of the prison warden. I'm like, what? <laughs> if God is with you, you don't have a personal relationship with a prison warden, right? <laughs> if he's on your side, you don't even want to know the prison warden. <laughs> it's the good news, Joseph. I'm with you. <laughs> And you're in the prison. And I'm going to give you favor with the prison warden. And and we all think that is just not evidence at all that God is with a person. Uh, But Joseph continues to live in a manner as if God is actually with him. He's always watching. And time goes on and Pharaoh throws a couple of his workers in prison. And Joseph interprets their dreams. And one dream was a cupbearer. And he told the cupbearer, listen... One day you're going to return to the service of Pharaoh. And when you do, don't forget about me. That I interpreted your dream. When you get up there, don't forget about me. And it actually happened and the guy forgot about him. And two years later, Pharaoh has this very disturbing dream. And he comes to all the wise men in his court and he says, listen, is there anybody that can interpret this dream? In? And nobody can figure it out. Nobody understands it. And all of a sudden the cop goes, aha, I remember this guy in prison. And when you, when you king got a little upset with me. And we're not going to talk about that right now. And it was totally my fault, but you threw me in prison. Remember that, remember that time? And it was, me, it was me, not you. I just want to let you know that. But when you threw me in prison, I had this dream and there's this guy by the name of Joseph that interpreted my dream. And he said one day I was going to be back in your service doing this stuff again. And he was dead on right. So you should maybe go see if he can interpret the dream. And so they're going through the prison and is there Joseph here, Joseph. You know, and Joseph's here. And so they take Joseph out and he goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh tells him the dream. And he says, can you interpret the dream? And Joseph, uh, you know, they clean him up first. They share him up. They shave him. They probably pierce his ears. They make him look like he's supposed to belong here. He hears a dream and Pharaoh goes, can you interpret the dream? And he says something. that would be very arrogant at the time. No, I cannot. But the God that I serve can interpret the dream. Notice those words. He's vying for his life to get out of prison. So I'm not the guy, but the God that I serve can. And he's acting as if God is with him all the time during all the trial and turmoil. So he says, Pharaoh, here's the interpretation of the dream. And he goes on to tell him this. He goes, listen, your dream means this. In the next seven years, there's just going to be a bounty of harvest. There's just going to be grain like you've never seen before. But the next seven years after that, there's going to be a famine in the land like you've never seen before. So this is what you need to do. Not only does he tell him the dream, he begins to give him advice, which is just you don't do that to Pharaoh. He says, this is what you should do. You should find a wise man, a very, very prudent man, a man that you can trust. Put him in charge and build yourself silos. Build yourself barns. And for the next seven years, tax the people 20% of all the grain that comes in. And you start storing this away. So when the next seven years comes, you can sell it back to them. You can be a very, 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 very wealthy man. Everybody's going to think you're the greatest Pharaoh that's ever lived. And so that's the plan you should do. And in doing this and hearing this, Pharaoh goes, you know what? I think I found that man. It's you. And all the people are going, we just... This guy just got out of prison. (laughs) Why? You don't even know this guy. He's from a foreign land and you're going to put him in charge. And he says... Is there anyone, nobody can interpret the dream, is there anyone more wise than this man right here? And so Joseph gets put into this position of authority and it does exactly what he told Pharaoh he would do. It's a great plan. It's a great system. And sure enough, on January 1st of the eighth year, a famine hits. And all of a sudden through the next year and the next two years, people started coming and he starts distributing the food he, the food he was in charge of that. And after two years... Back in his homeland, of his father and his brothers, they begin to run out of food. And somebody says, you know what, I hear they have food in Egypt. And so the father says, go and go see if we can buy some food there. And they go in and his Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy grain. And they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. But he also remembers them. And what had happened. And it goes on. And we see this story all going through Genesis. About how he's dealing with the emotions of seeing his brothers who don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. And he's trying to find out about what's happening to my father. He finds out that his mother had another son, Benjamin. A younger brother. And there's all these emotions going on in him. And you're just sitting there with this turmoil. What is he going to do? How is he going to react to this? I mean, can you imagine being in that position and going through everything they went through? And there they are. And you're now the authority and they're bowing down to you. And 45 of Genesis chapter 45, verse 1 tells us exactly what he does. Finally, this is a beautiful story. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. Hmm. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him, because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they'd done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you. Hmm. "...to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt, come down to me and don't delay." You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin. That is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after his brothers talked with him. What a journey. And we say to ourselves, how in the world could he do that with everything that he's been through. How could he keep that perspective that God was with me, God was with me, God was with me, and oh, by the way, he sent me here ahead of time so that I could save my family who tried to, by the way, kill me. And he embraces his brothers and his, and his father and he kisses them and he loves them. How could Jesus do that? Well, I want to go back years and years and years to a scene from a story of his childhood. His father, Jacob, was the younger twin, remember, of Esau. And in those days, if you remember, the older brother had the upper hand when it came to when the father passed away. He had the birthright. And there was a day they were both teenagers. And Esau was a hunter. And uh, Jacob was really good at uh, cooking food, making food. They just had different skill sets. And one day, Joseph, as a t- uh, Esau, as a, as a teenager, is out hunting and he couldn't find anything and he couldn't kill anything and he comes back and he's famished and Jacob's making the stew and he smells the stew and he's, he's really hungry. And so Esau says to, to Jacob, give me some of your stew. And like younger brothers do, they're like, well, this is an opportunity to leverage this against my older brother and I don't give him any opportunities like this. So he says, um, hmm, let me leverage this. Let me think about this. Let me roll the dice on this, see what I can do. And he says, OK, yeah, yeah, you can have some stew, but sell me your birthright. Give it up. I mean, you just beat me by a couple of seconds when you came out. Let me have it instead of you. And Esau was still a teenager, not really thinking was frontal lobe yet. And he says, he's thinking for the moment, sure, that sounds great. I'm hungry. Yeah, What do I care? And so he gets the stew. He sells him his birthright. And it says, from that day forward, Esau despised his birthright. And so later then, his father Isaac is dying and he's actually losing his sight and with the help of his mother, he's going to give the blessings. And with the help of his mother, Jacob deceives his father Isaac. And he puts some fur on his hand because his brother was a lot hairier than he is. And he walks in and his father's doing the blessings and passing down the blessings. And he, he walks in and he, he fills his arm. And he says, Jacob says in a very low voice, this is, your, this is your son Esau. And he goes, it doesn't sound like my son Esau, you know what I mean? But, you know, I'm Esau. And, and so he says, well, I bless you and I give you the birthright. And later on, when Esau comes in for his blessing, Isaac says, I already gave that blessing. I can't take it back. And Esau is just livid. And he says, the day, in in, in my words, the day that my fathers die, I'm going to kill you, Jacob. You better run for your life because you stole my birthright. And the story says that Jacob ends up fleeing for his life. And he ends up living with his uncle who has two daughters. Again, you need to read your Bible. This is okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm telling you all this story, it's, it's very interesting, very detailed. And uh, he's there and he loves Rachel. And he gets deceived and ends up marrying her Leah. And then he gets to marry Rachel and he goes through all these years of being able to do this. And the problem is Rachel, his favorite wife, the one he really loves, can't have children. So Leah keeps having children. And Rachel goes, I want some children born to me. See, because they're, they're, they're the love relationship, so... She says, Here take my maidservant. she can have a child of me, you know, and he has that and they still have children, and next day he comes and we well try this one and he's like, Oh, okay. And so <laughs> and so <laughs> Yeah. And so finally, finally, she has a child. And who is the child? Joseph. And so Joseph now is his favorite child from his favorite wife. And he's becoming so wealthy and doing so well, he's absorbing the land. And finally, his uncle says, listen, you have got to go back to your homeland. You and your wives and your children and all your livestock got to go back to to, to the land of Abraham, Isaac and Esau. And um, God speaks to him and says, I'll be with you. And Jacob goes, you better be with me, because the last time I saw Esau, he was out to kill me. And so um, on his way home, here's the scripture of them meeting, Genesis 33, 1 through 4. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men, (laughs) 400 men. And so he did what a brave man would do. He divided up the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front. <laughs> then he put Leah and their children next. And then Rachel and Joseph, right, in the back. And he himself went ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob. And what did he do? And he embraced him. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And they wept. And little Joseph saw this entire scene unfold before him. He knew the story. He heard it over and over again. Esau, your uncle, was out to kill me, but when I showed up, he embraced me and kissed me. Now we fast forward. Joseph's brothers show up, right? How could he embrace the very brothers that threw him into prison? How could Joseph kiss his brothers who sold him into slavery? How could he be living so far away from home and believe that God was with him not against him. The reason is because he remembered a day. He saw a moment. He heard the stories in his childhood when Uncle Esau could have and should have killed his father, but instead forgave him and embraced him. And on that day, he received grace and reconciliation. And 30 years later, there stands Joseph's brothers before him And he chooses to do what is in his heritage, what he remembers, the story that he grew up with. And he chooses to do the same thing that his uncle did. And he embraces and he forgives. And he chooses in a moment of crisis, in a moment of these extraordinary emotions, he chooses to do what was done for his father, extend mercy to those who do not deserve mercy. And he says, you may have intended this for evil, but God intended this for good. And he, and he saves his family from famine in the land because of what he knew. And here's the moral of the story. What your children and your grandchildren and your nieces and your nephews and your children see you do in the moment of crisis is going to lay the groundwork for what they will do in their future moments of crisis. Every action we make, every decision we decide has a ripple effect, an echo for generations to come. They're going to echo throughout eternity. They're going to forget about everything you say to them, okay? But they will never forget what you do and what you're about, the essence of your character. One of my favorite scriptures about Timothy, he was a young man, he was a protege of the Apostle Paul, a man that was a son to him. Uh, and, and we want to know how did, how did Timothy to get to that faith where he became a son of the Apostle Paul? 2 Timothy 1 5 says this Paul speaking to him, I reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and then in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you. Where did it start? In grandma? was past the mother, which now lives in Timothy. Here's the family value. We live our lives. We make each decision as followers of Jesus with an incredible understanding that today's action influences tomorrow's outcomes. Do you believe that? See, the culture we live in today says that's not true. We live for the moment. Esau lived for the moment. We have to ask ourselves, are we going to establish a family value that says, listen... I understand the decisions I make will impact my future generations. I mean, it could be 60 years down the road. The decisions I make today. So I'm going to choose to live as if God is with me on my side in the moment of crisis. I'm not going to bend to cultural standards. I'm not going to say what other people say about God. I'm going to choose to live my life in a way that I understand that. So that my life will echo through generations. That God is alive and He works and He extends mercy and grace. See, we have got to understand that. That's got to be a family value. Because when you do it that way, it does pass down to generations. And people ask me all the time, well, yeah, I don't know how, how my daughters ended up the way they did, but I know this. You know what? We did the best we could and we, we invited God into every situation in our life. We absolutely did. It may take me there too, but we got there. <laughs> and you know what? They journeyed with me during that time too. They got to fill, and we got there. And I want to encourage you today that we have heritages here today, some of you, because you have mamas that prayed. You know? You have grandmothers who believed in God with all their heart. And you're sitting here today, and your family's sitting here today because of of something they did that was passed down to you and passed down to generation to generation. And now you have the opportunity to extend that to people beyond you. So I want to pray for you, and let's uh, let's do two things today. Let's stand and pray. Let's thank God for the heritage that we have that was passed down to us through our lineage of our, our mothers, especially our mothers and our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers, and uh, then let's just ask God for that same faith that we can, we can do that. So, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. We want to thank you for mothers and grandmothers, um, a lineage, fathers and grandfathers who really believed in you, who lived their life, as if you truly cared, uh, who lived life as if you were with them all the time regardless of the circumstance. I want to thank you for a grandmother who during the Great Depression held her faith in you and and lived here in Arizona in the desert and tents but but still went to church and still believed in the middle of the summer heat while she was picking cotton, she was singing songs of faith to you. That you were with her. And she passed that down to my mother and that passed down to me And I pray now, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would help me understand that, to pass that down to the generations below me, and that this ripple effect will continue to my children and my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, and that your kingdom will come and your will will be done in my family. Give us the perception, Father, in the name of Jesus, that every decision we make, everything we do has a ripple effect. And so let us make those decisions with you guiding us through prayer and understanding. And I pray that you would give us that insight. And I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a presentation of Streams Church in Litchfield Park, Arizona. Visit streamschurch.org for service times, general information, and more.